0: All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Oh, let's try it again. Good morning, guys. Good morning. That's better. All right. Grab your Bibles. We're going over to the book of James this morning. Uh, going back to the book of James after our Easter excursion into Romans 4 and 5. Uh, I'm going to be picking up where we left off. Um, in our study books, uh, we don't actually have a, uh, a page for today's sermon, um, Partly because we just forgot to put this passage in the book, that was one of our mistakes, and partly because I actually split it into two sermons, so we get to spend two sermons without pages. So just flip to the back of the book, we have some blank pages at the back where you can take notes If you don't have one of our James study books, let me encourage you to pick one up in the lobby. Um, This is our attempt to help equip you to get the most out of what's happening here. Um, It's designed to to get you into the Bible before you show up on Sunday with a little bit of observational Bible study, what's called inductive Bible study. Very simple, but it just gets you into the text, and then there's a place for you to take notes on Sunday morning, and then there are questions that are designed to help you move into community afterwards where you're discussing the things that you're learning. And of course, we do that in our community groups. You can do it in other small groups. But here's the thing, you guys, you'll be blessed as you engage. I just, you will be blessed as you engage. You will get more out of the process as you invest more into it. And and so we're equipping you. That's our attempt to to help you out to do that. So if you need one of those books, grab them in the lobby. Um, But this morning we're going over to James. We're going to James chapter 1, which if you're using one of our Bibles that are sitting around the room, uh, we're going over to page 1011. Now just to remind you, James is uh, a letter that was written Um, by James, a first-century Jewish Christian leader, written to first-century Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of persecution out of Jerusalem, right? So they were in Jerusalem, and now they are moving into northern Judea and Syria and and that area, and and he is writing to them uh, because they live in between two kingdoms, right? They, They live in the kingdom of the world, but as believers in Christ, they are living for the kingdom of Christ. They are living in this world, with all of its blessing and all of its suffering, but they're living for the world to come. And so in some senses, that makes us the exact target audience, right? James is writing to first century believers who are living in the tension between the two worlds, and, and that's exactly where we find ourselves today. And, um, and James's purpose in writing this letter is to call uh, his readers um, out of worldliness, um, out of worldly religion, and, um, and so let me just again remind you how we define worldliness, what the Bible says about worldliness. Worldliness is not all the bad stuff out there. That's often how the church defines it. Uh, it's, it's all the bad things, the entertainment, the, the, the abuses, and, and, and if we can just avoid all the bad stuff out there, we can keep all this stuff in here nice and pure and safe. Uh, the problem is worldliness isn't out there. Worldliness is in here worldliness is is biblically defined as as our desire and the systems we create to do life apart from god worldliness is my desire to get the blessing of god apart from relationship with god it's my desire to get the goodness of god without having to submit to god it is my desire to get all the fullness of life without the god who gives that fullness of life it is my desire to be like god instead of dependent on god Right? The same sin that we see at the very beginning of the Bible replicated in the human heart through all these generations. Right, So worldliness is an internal problem that leads me to create systems where I try to find uh, the blessing of God apart from the presence of God. One of the most dangerous things to the human soul um, is worldly religion. The religion we create that is designed... To move us closer to God's blessing without moving us closer to God himself. Worldly religion is, I believe, the most dangerous thing to the human soul. It's more dangerous than all the enemies out there. It's, all, it's more dangerous than all the bad things that, that, that we should be against or should be work. It, worldly religion is incredibly dangerous because it makes us believe we're growing closer to God even as we we're walking farther away. It locks us into the world of of self-deception, where where we think um, God is more and more pleased with us, even as we um, get more and more frustrated. James calls this worthless religion, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. He calls this worthless religion. Um, And today, we actually get to look at one of the most memorable images in this entire book. Um, We're going to take a look at that. But here's his point. We'll just open with this. He, he says, basically, don't settle for worthless religion. Don't settle for worthless religion when when the real thing, man, is right here. Don't settle for a religion of, of pretending and performance of self-indulgence. Don't, don't do it. Today, James is calling us to make it real. Okay, so let's take a look at James chapter one. We're gonna be looking at verses 19 through 27. We covered verses 19 through um, 21 three weeks ago before um, Palm Sunday, but it is part of this passage, so I want to read it this morning because it's part of the context. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. um, Preachers love this passage. (laughs) Uh, Preachers love this passage. Um, A phrase that I've heard since I've kind of joined the the pastor world, um, not my first world, right? I was 17 years as a teacher and a principal. Education was my background. And, and even though I preached in my local church uh, as a lay leader during those years, I um, was not in the pastor. But, but now that I'm in these pastor circles, I hear this phrase all the time, um, that'll preach, right? People just throw it out there, that'll preach. And what they mean is whatever that idea was or whatever that phrase was or whatever that metaphor was, man, remember that because that'll preach, Right? Because pastors are always thinking about their next sermon. We, we just are, right? Because it doesn't matter, man. As soon as I'm done, I'm already ramping up and prepping for the next one. It comes every single Sunday. And so when you come across an idea that you think is really going to catch, you know, it's really going to get people interested, it's really going to be like that, we'll preach. This is a passage that'll preach. This is one of the most taught passages in the book of James. And honestly, it is one of the most mistaught. Um, and uh, confession is good for the soul. I've mistaught this passage. Uh, I, I have opened up this word and taught it that I, in ways I think now are, are just flat out wrong. Um, here's the thing. Uh, pastors can be really frustrated people. Uh, they just can't. I've discovered this because pastors get up front every single week and they open up the Bible and they get all excited. And every time they preach, they expect the glory of God to fall, flames of fire to pop up above people's heads and people to be just changed, like absolutely changed in their lives. And yet week after week, after week, after week, people preach and, and, and week after week, people come up and they're like, thanks man, that was that was good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was good. Yeah, a little flat, but but... You know, that illustration, I'll remember that. That was, what was it again? Um, and so what ends up happening is, is pastors are really passionate about life change. That's why people move toward a position like this. They want to see communities change. They want to see people change. They want to see people moving out on the mission of God. They want to, they want to see the glory of God manifest in their local community. And so, man, they just preach and they preach and they preach. And it can be really hard, right? It can be frustrating when, when you're preaching your guts out and, and you're not seeing change. You're not seeing people engage. You're not seeing, you know, you're dealing with the same problems every week. You're having the same conversations over and over and over again, sometimes with the same exact people over and over and over again, right? You're just, you're just seeing this happen. Um, and so that's why pastors love a passage like this. Because a passage like this, honestly, man, pastor reads this and they're like man I'm bringing the hammer this weekend. I am man you're going to be crushed. I'm going to I'm going to whoop you, right? I'm going to light a holy fire under your rear end and you are going to move, right? Things are going to happen. You will you will you will feel desperate to change after this weekend. You will want to grow after this weekend because this is the kind of passage that that does that. There's a powerful image in this passage. This 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 idea of the guy coming and looking in the mirror, right? James is like, man, there's a bad kind of religion. There's this thing that, that, that people are just hearers and not doers. And, and they're like this. They come and they look in the, the mirror and, and, and they see themselves. And what do they do? They just walk away. They just walk away. They refuse to fix what they see. They walk away and they think, I'm good enough. Man, that'll preach. That'll preach, right? Because all I got to do is get up here and and say, man, how much time do you spend looking in the mirror? How much time do you devote looking in the mirror? And some of you are like, not a lot. And some of you are like like, eh, quite a bit, right? But here's the thing. If you look in the mirror and you see something really, really wrong, like your hair is just wonky, you know, you got green stuff stuck between your teeth, you know, everyone's like, hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you got a big pimple right here in the middle of your forehead, and you know it's just like, um, you know, you're going to do something, right? You're going to pay attention, Right? You're, gonna, you're gonna fix it, right? But you don't do that with the Word of God. You're more concerned with your physical appearance than you are with your, your spiritual well being. You're more concerned, you spend more time looking at your face in the mirror than you do by looking in the Word of God. You're more concerned with fixing your hair or, or, or making yourself look good or make sure people are impressed with your latest hairstyle than you are with how you're doing spiritually. Man, you need to man up. You need to, you need to look in the mirror of Word of God. And you need to, you need to take a look and pay attention to all the stuff that's wrong. You need to make a list. And you better get to work. And you better fix it. Because you're more concerned with the temporal appearance of your face than you are with the eternal appearance of your soul. Man, are you even a Christian? Are you even a Christian, right? James, right here, says that this person is self-deceived in verse 22. Somebody who isn't paying attention to improving themselves spiritually. Not even sure they're a Christian. Are you a Christian this morning? Because if so, you better get to work. You better clean yourself up. You better make your list of where you need to grow, and you better get serious about it. I'm going to light a holy fire under your butt and get you moving. And by the time I'm done, I'm going to have the entire room questioning their salvation. And then I'm like, yeah, good, good. You should be questioning your salvation. Now maybe you'll take your spirituality seriously. Now maybe you'll actually be concerned about it enough to actually grow. Um, so to all the people that I've taught this to in the past, I offer my humble and sincere apology. That's flat-out bad theology, and it is bad preaching. That is not the gospel. Um, and if you've had that teaching, I apologize on behalf of whatever pastor was, was uh, insecure enough and driven enough to want to see people filled with insecurity as if somehow that was going to lead to genuine spiritual growth. We have been wrong. When I look at this passage... When I actually look at this passage, there are three things that become very, very clear to me that only, they only come to surface when you, when you look closely at the text. Three things I should have noticed when years and years ago I taught this, uh, but by the grace of God, um, we're going to take a look at this morning, okay? And these three things are this. First of all, James isn't calling us to focus on our flaws. He's calling us to focus on his grace. Secondly, he isn't calling us to get ourselves done for God. He is calling us to be undone by grace. And thirdly, he's not saying that true religion is marked by do better, try harder, fix yourself theology. He's saying true religion is marked by a heart so full of love that it must love others. So we're going to take a look at these in turn. First of all, James isn't calling us to focus on our flaws. He's calling us to focus on grace. So let's take a look at our text and see where this is coming from. Look, first of all, closely at verses 22 through 24. James begins by saying, Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer, only deceiving yourselves. Let's pause there. There is a warning here that we do need to pay attention to. There is a way to be religious. There is a way to be Christian. There is a way to go to church and do the Christian life that is self-deceptive, that's not real. What James calls being a hearer only and not a doer, right? So so we need to pay attention to this, right? And he goes on in verse 23, "For, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and it and at once forgets what he was like. All right, this is the, this is that metaphor I was talking about, this image that is so, so gripping and so memorable, right? This man comes, and he looks at himself in a mirror, and he looks at his natural face. That's just a way of saying that he sees himself. Now, they didn't have perfect mirrors like we have today. Uh, They had had polished sheets of metal or other things. The more money you had, the more reflective the surface could be, Uh, but they did have mirrors, and people were used to coming and looking and, and fixing a few things. And so he leans into that and says, hey, you know, when you look at yourself, your natural face in a mirror, you walk away um, and you just leave it unchanged. You just leave it unchanged. That, that is like somebody who's just a hearer and, and not a doer. All right. Now, let's compare that. So what is this person focusing on? You're saying, well, the mirror. Now, you don't focus on the mirror when you look in a mirror. What are you focusing on? Yourself, right? You're focusing on yourself. You're focusing on your image. You're focusing on you, right? Now, let's compare that to verse 25. Take a look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all of his doing. What's the second guy focused on? Not himself. It says that he is looking intently into what? The, The law, the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, Obviously, there's there's meant to be a comparison here, so I think there's a sense in which when this person looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, they do see themselves in it. But they're not focused on themselves. They're not looking in it to see themselves. They're focused on the perfect law. They're focused on the law of liberty, and that law of liberty may show them things about themselves, but that's not the focus. The focus is this law, So what is this perfect law? What does that even mean? Perfect law, law of liberty, right? That's really weird language to us. Well, we need to remember that James, as a first century Jewish Christian leader, who is writing to first century Jewish Christian people, is going to use language that is very familiar to his context and his world, right? So we're outsiders to this language. It shouldn't surprise us that that it feels a little foreign to us, that it feels a little off, because these are they've all shared the same cultural experience. They were all raised in in Jewish homes. They were all raised under the teaching of the Torah. They all memorized the law. They all all, uh, had a, a mindset that was centered around this, right? So normally when a Jewish person spoke about the law, they would be speaking about what we call the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, the Torah, which most of us would identify with the Ten Commandments. We've all heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Well, the Ten Commandments were just the the down payment of the full law. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament, and those laws affected every area of Jewish life, every day. And so Jewish people would go through their day, and, and, and they didn't think about the law like once a week when they went to synagogue or just occasionally. They thought about it all the time because the Jewish law affected every area of their life. They understood the effects of this law because this law continually measured them and continually condemned them. That's what the law does. The law shows you what you're supposed to be and it shows you that you fall short of it. And it doesn't tell you how to fix it. Right? That's what the the Old Testament law does. Here's God's standard and here's where you measure up on that and and you fail. And so what it does is is it points out... um, where you're wrong, but it doesn't give you any help to fix it. So listen, what I want you to hear is, is the Old Testament law was not a perfect law because it couldn't bring the process to completion. It could show what was wrong, but it couldn't give any help to make it right. The, the Old Testament law came in and said, this is where you fall short, but it didn't give you any help in, in actually changing what what was. Falling short, it could only condemn. James says that this person looks into the perfect law. And then he adds, this is a law of liberty. This law is perfect. Because unlike a list of rules that simply show us where we fall short and condemn us for doing so, this law actually has the power to deliver us into liberty. This law actually has the power to deliver us into freedom. It doesn't just show us who we are, where we are. It actually has the power of changing us to be what we long to be, to become what we're supposed to be. It is a law of freedom, a law that brings brings liberty because it delivers us into that freedom. It doesn't condemn us, it transforms us. So what is this law? Well, just look one page over in chapter 2. I want you to see, because James refers to the law multiple times, this law multiple times throughout his letter, and he uses different terminology each time, but, but I think there's something informative in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbors, you love yourself, you are doing well. Why, why here? So it was a, it was the perfect law, and then it was the law of liberty, and now it's the royal law. Why is it called the royal law? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but he actually quoted Jesus there. If you live by the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? Jesus said when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the royal law because it was the law given by the king, Jesus himself. What he's saying is is there's a new law that governs my life as a Jewish Christian. It's not the Old Testament law that, that condemned. It is the law of Christ, the royal law, the law of love. Jesus came to love us and in loving us to call us to love. Right? When Jesus himself was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't say your moral improvement. He didn't say fixing yourself. What did he say? He said, the greatest commandment is love. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and here's the thing that we'll do, because we're pretty broken, twisted people. We'll turn that into a to-do list. And, well, do I love God enough? And do I love my neighbor enough? And, and that completely misses the point, because, because Christian theology tells us, I don't love God because of my self-effort. I love because he first loved me. Because I am loved, I am freed to love. Because I am loved, it changes me and awakens me and transforms me and, and awake, it frees me. It is a law of liberty. It is a law that brings freedom that, that love comes in and does what no rule could ever do See, this, this perfect law of love, it, it doesn't conform your behavior from the outside in. It transforms your behavior from the inside out. It is a law of freedom. I love that phrase because it's such a paradox. Uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I think about freedom, I don't think about rules. Right? That law of liberty, that doesn't work. Like For me, freedom comes with a lack of rules. right? Get rid of all the restrictions and just let me go. Right? The fewer restrictions, the freer I am. And I think there's a cultural mindset that kind of believes the same thing, that if I can, if I can just have enough money, if I can just have enough fame, if I can just have enough political influence, that, that all the restrictions are removed and I can just do whatever I want, then I'll be genuinely free. And we know, we know how ridiculous that actually is because the people in our culture who are the freest in that way aren't exactly paragons of mental and, and emotional health right? They, they aren't the happiest and freest people. They are often the most self-destructive and miserable people. They just have a lot of money while they're doing it, right? And, and so it, it, freedom doesn't come from a lack of restriction. Listen to me. Freedom comes from being loved. The person who is most deeply and profoundly aware of being loved is the freest person around because they are secure. Because they, are, they, they have joy. Because their deep need to be known and loved is met. They're not looking for things outside of themselves to satisfy a deep desire within themselves. The love comes in and meets the needs and frees them to actually enjoy the gifts around them instead of using those gifts, trying to get them to do uh, what only God can do. It is a law of liberty, because it is a law that produces freedom. It is love. And here's the thing, you guys, the longer you look at that law, the longer you sit in that law of love, you sit in the truth of of, 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 of that royal law that God has loved you, the freer you will become. a law of liberty the perfect law. See, I would just call it the gospel. I think it's the same exact thing. James just has a different way of talking about it in his context. The gospel, the good news that God has loved me where I am, who I am, not because I've impressed him, not because I've earned it, but because he is a God of grace and he loves the unlovable. But in His grace, He doesn't just give a pardon. He gives gives acceptance. He, He doesn't just remove my guilt and my shame. He actually adopts me into His family and covers me with His dignity and invites me to the table of His glory and His grace. That kind of love. The law of liberty, the perfect law of the gospel. You are loved. And when you taste deeply of that kind of love, you're going to be freer in your ability to love others. So, so the first point that I want you to see that I was missing in this text is this. James' point isn't that we're supposed to focus on ourselves. James's point isn't that we're supposed to focus on our flaws or make a list of all the areas we fall short. James's point is that we're supposed to focus on grace. Now, we will see ourselves in the grace of God, but we are not the focus. It is the grace that is the focus. We are focusing on the, on the ridiculous outpouring of the love of God to me. Focus on grace. That leads to the second point. He isn't calling us to uh, get ourselves done for God. He is calling us to be undone by grace. There are two words in these verses that I think it might be helpful if I if I if I give you a little bit of background on. Um, in verse twenty-five, it's the word "look." Right. So in verse twenty-five, it says. Um, But, anyone, uh, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, that word looks uh, is, is a Greek word, uh, para-kypto. Para means alongside, kypto means to kneel. What kind of looking do you think that in, 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 is talking about? para to kneel alongside. It's not talking about a casual glance. It's not talking about, uh, oh yeah, there it is, right? And moving on. Like to kneel and to look carefully means you've got to stop. You have to stoop. You have to study. The man who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the man who stops, the man who stoops, and the man who studies. This is a posture of humility. This is a posture of focus. This is a posture where where it is a willful and deliberate choice that I will stop, I will stoop, and I will study. I will look into the perfect law of liberty. And then he goes on and says, this person who who is both a doer and and a hearer, this person not only looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he perseveres. In the looking. The Greek word for perseveres is uh, paramune. Remember that para, perakipto, meant to kneel alongside. Paramune, para means alongside. Mune um, means uh, to remain. Now, it may sound familiar because over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about this word endurance. Right? When, when we were in James, earlier in James 1, where, where it says, um, we rejoice in, in all the different kinds of trials in our life. Why? Because they produce endurance in our lives. That was that Greek word, huppomone. And I told you I loved that word because it gave me the picture hippo. It means under, like this guy who goes, the, the hippo just goes under the water, right? And disappears. And, and that's that picture of, 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 of what God works in us when we go through suffering. He increases our ability to come under pressure without being crushed, to be, be under the waters of suffering without drowning. He actually increases our endurance, Mane. Right? We talked about it last week with Romans 5. It was the same word where, where it says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because our sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character increases our hope. Right, Endurance, hupomone. Now we're dealing with paramone, perseverance. What that means is that we, we, in our stooping, in our kneeling, in our looking, We remain alongside this truth, and we don't walk away. You're like, Steve, this isn't helping. All right, let me put it in my words, what this means. The kind of looking we're talking about here is the kind of looking you never stop doing. I don't want you to think about your morning Bible study time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you, you know, taking your 15 minutes and opening the Word and getting in, reading the psalm, being like, okay, I'm spiritually charged for the day, let's go. What I'm talking about is a mindset that never leaves this truth. You come alongside the gospel, this incredible, incredible and profound message that God loves you. Not because you've earned it, not because you, you're attractive, not because you've done anything, but because God is a God of grace, He loves you profoundly he delights in you this truth and you stop and you stoop and you study this truth and you persevere you kneel alongside this truth and you never stop looking at it you never stop studying it you never stop letting it be the first thing you know about yourself and the first thing that leads you into action Think about how profoundly your life would be changed if your first and and, and really most urgent thought about yourself throughout the day at all times was this. God loves me. The sovereign, holy, immutable God of the universe delights in me. What if that was the first and most important thing you knew about yourself at all times? Do you think you'd be easily offended? Do you think you'd be easily threatened? Do you think you'd be easily afraid? Do you think that that you would be tempted to try to earn what God has freely given? Do you think that you you would start judging people who aren't as good? No, I'm telling you, this is a profoundly transforming truth to kneel alongside the gospel, to look deeply and wrestle with it. And allow it to define my image of myself. How I see myself and the world around me. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about stooping, kneeling next to this truth and then persevering. Never allowing that truth to leave our minds. Never allowing that reality to escape our attention. This, he says, is how you do the Word. This is somebody who's a doer of the Word. Okay, that leads to another question. How in the world is that doing the Word? Because all I'm doing is kneeling next to a truth, a profound and wonderful truth, and allowing it to seep into my soul. How is that being a doer of the Word? I'm really just growing in my faith in the Word. I'm learning how to believe that truth. How is that being a doer? Well, let me ask you something. How do you do love? How do you do love? Well, there's only one way to do love. It's to respond to love. In your friendships, in your parenting, in your marriage relationship, how do you do love? You do love by receiving love and giving love. You do love by by actually believing you're loved and receiving that love, and, and that disarms your defenses and disarms your need to prove yourself and disarms your need to be right and disarms your need to be first, and it allows you to move in service and in joy and in humility toward the other person. That's how you do love. You receive love, and in receiving it, you're free to give love. This is what James means when he says that we're supposed to be doers of the word. We need to be those who are deeply and profoundly responding to the love of God and from that place of response, learning how to move out in love toward him and toward others responding to his love, right? This is the remedy to the worldly religion of our hearts because here's the thing, you guys, if we're not responding to the love of God, we are going to be growing in worldly religion. Those are the only two options. Worldly religion is when we're trying to get the blessing of God apart from a relationship with God. We're trying to perform for God instead of respond to God. It is us trying to put our resume in front of God instead of trying to respond to to God's love for us. Worldly religion. Here's the irony, you guys. There's two ways for us to be worldly in our religion. And and depending on your wiring, you're probably going to gravitate toward one of these. You're either going to be a rule keeper or you're going to be a rule breaker. Rule breakers think that the way they get the fullness of life is by breaking God's law, right? God put up these fences and the best stuff's always on the other side because God's a cosmic killjoy and because He really doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't really want me to have joy. The way to joy is, is to kind of do get there on my own, right? God set up a rule, said don't do that, and I'm like, okay, the joy on the other side, right? And rule Breakers are constantly wondering what joy am I being blocked from, rule keepers, Rule keepers are trying to get the blessing of God by earning it. They're going to keep the law so well, they're going to keep the rules so well that they make God indebted to them. God, you owe me. They want this, that's what they crave more than anything, is this deep sense. They want to to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. And they want to hear that not because it's a gift of grace, but because they've earned it from the mouth of God. They want to obey the rules so well, they get the blessing of God based on their ability to earn it from God. Both of these people, both of these people are like a person who looks in the mirror. They're just focused on themselves. They're not focused on the grace of God. They're not focused on the love of God. They are just focused on themselves. And they immediately walk away and forget what kind of people they were. Why? Because they don't acknowledge their need for grace. It doesn't matter whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker. You're both trying to get the blessing of God apart from the, from the presence of God. And what's ironic is that churches are normally filled with a bunch of rule keepers who judge all the rule breakers. Churches are often filled with people who have their resume, all the ways they're obeying God, all the ways they feel good about themselves, all the ways they're exercising self-control, all the ways they're denying themselves, all the ways they're doing it right, and then they have this list of people over here. They're all the rule breakers. And a lot of times, the preachers are trying to get people to stop being rule breakers and just become rule keepers. And it's tragic. It's tragic. because it actually blocks us from moving into the actual experience of the grace and the love of God. That's worldly religion. That is worthless religion. That's what James is calling us out of. But the man who looks into the perfect law of love and perseveres there the one who sits in the perfect law of love until that love actually breaks his heart. He sits in the presence of grace until his pride is undone in that grace. This man is blessed in his doing. Not because he's earning it, not because he's performing for it, but because he's simply working out of what God is working into him. He is simply living out of the grace that God is needing deeply into his soul. He is responding to God. And in responding, he's being changed. James says, we need to be doers of the Word. Steve's version, Steve's authorized version of this would be we need to make it real you guys we need to make it real this isn't about going to church it's not putting in the time it's not about fixing yourself morally it's not about having a checklist and impressing people it's not about looking religious or putting on your sunday best man what a pile of garbage It is about actually responding to the love of God to the point where that love transforms you and you're able to love others. It is freely receiving the love of God and becoming a conduit of that love. Because in being loved and in learning to love, you will unleash the greatest blessings of God in your life. The very glory of God will be released as you are transformed into the image of Jesus. When we engage grace and humility, man, you cannot walk away unchanged. And that leads me to the last thing I got wrong. This uh, true religion isn't about do better, try harder. See, that's the mistake. We often think that the, the key to, to genuine spiritual transformation, man, you just need to do better, try harder. That's why pastors are trying to light spiritual fires under the seats of their congregation. man, you just need to do better, it's an issue of motivation. It's an issue of motivation, man. You just need to be motivated. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to motivate you. Man, that's not, that is worthless religion. Self-improvement checklist theology, man. True religion isn't about do better, try harder. It's about a heart so overwhelmed with love that we can't help but love. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, we have a strange comparison here. Again, James does this a lot, um, and I have come to appreciate it because it knocks us off balance. And let let me tell you why this is a strange comparison. Because on the one hand, you have a person... He says that that doesn't bridle their tongue. They don't control their speech, right? They 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 don't um, have a handle on that. And this person, he says, man, their religion's worthless. Their religion is, is worthless, right? That person deceives themselves. They think their religion's awesome. They think they're actually right in line with the blessing of God. They think, but no, they're self-deceived. Their religion Is worthless and then we compare that on the other hand with this person who has pure religion and the person who has pure religion man they visit the the orphan and the widow in their affliction they visit the orphan and the widow in their distress all right let me ask you something can't somebody do both i know people who do both they're really passionate about issues of social justice They're all about changing the world. They're all about loving the people on the margins. They're all about finding the people that that the majority culture is not empowering or paying attention to, and they're all about, and at the same time, they're all about unleashing their tongue in destructive and ugly ways on the people who aren't doing the same things they're doing. On the people that don't love in all the ways they love. They, They feel incredible pride in their social engagement. And they feel absolute freedom in using their language to tear down and destroy anybody who might have a different value system or approach it a different way. So what in the world? How does this work? How is this an either or when you can do both? What in the world is James saying here? All right, the only way this makes any sense is if we realize that James isn't comparing the activities, he's comparing the heart behind them. He's not comparing what they're doing He's comparing the motivations and the transformation that compels them. He's not comparing the actions, not, not primarily. He's comparing what they demonstrate. Let me, give you, let me dig in a little bit. A person who uses their tongue to tear others down. What does that tell us about them? Somebody who uses their tongue to to silence somebody who disagrees with them, to abuse somebody who threatens them, to ridicule somebody that they feel threatened by, that that, that they they silence anyone that makes them feel defensive. They use their their tongue to to defeat. They use their tongue to abuse. They use their social media voice, whether it's in memes or in, in... in witty sayings, they 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 tear other people down to make themselves feel big. They make others feel small so that they can feel important. They like to to they like to hurt others so that they can feel whole. Because if you disagree with me and I can make you feel stupid about it somehow, that makes me more right. What does that tell us about this person? It tells us, if nothing else, that their heart has not been undone by grace. Their heart is defensive of their little kingdoms, their priorities, their intelligence. This is somebody whose pride is fully and perfectly intact, and that makes them incredibly sensitive and scared and ugly. They're still trying to use their words to gain power and establish the boundaries of their kingdom. They're using their words to remove power from people who disagree with them or might be a threat to them. They are not, as James says earlier in our passage, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. They do not bridle their tongue because their hearts have unbridled pride and fear and shame. The one who visits the orphans and widows, on the other hand, and does this in their affliction, meeting them in their lowness, is empowered through love. So orphans and widows during the time of James um, were uniquely vulnerable in culture. Um, Today, orphans and widows, I mean, it's sad, but they're not uniquely exposed to cultural currents like they were back then, right? We we see kids that don't have parents and our heartstrings, man, we just, we have an idolatry of kids in our culture. You know, you want to make money? You want to raise money? Just so puppies are kids, right? Because we love both. They're cute. And we're like, yes, I'll give money, right? We, we just do. This cultural idolatry with children um, is not universal. During this period of time, they did not look at kids in the same way. Right? Kids were a means to an end. They were a source of future financial benefit and profit. They wanted to have large families because that's how you had a large uh, industrious farm. And by having a large industrious farm, that's how you provided for your security. It was not about the kids. Orphans and widows. During this period of time, women were uniquely vulnerable because they had no voice. A woman during this period of time could, she had no legal voice in a court of law. She could not bring an accusation legally against a man. She simply couldn't do it. Her voice, her, her testimony was already discounted. So widows and orphans during this period of time were uniquely marginalized and vulnerable. They were people who had no political clout, no political protection. They were people who had nothing to offer and could be easily abused and often were by people with power and with clout, and they could do so without any kind of social recrimination because they had the power and, and, and the orphan the widow did not. James says, pure and undefiled religion meets the people in the margins. It sees the people nobody else wants to see. It sees their humanity. It sees their dignity. It sees their need, and it allows their pain to become part of mine." It means I meet them in their suffering. I meet them in their need. A lot like God did with us in Christ. We don't love them because it benefits us, because there was no cultural benefit. We don't love them because somehow it makes us feel good about us. There was, there was no, we meet them in their need because they are created in the image of God. And when we meet them in their need, we are honoring God by honoring their humanity. This is way more than, than obviously swooping in and cleaning up a lot or rebuilding a house and then going back to your, your safe world and feeling good about your, your great um, mission experience. Actually, loving people cause us to actually see people. Actually, seeing people is costly because we have to actually listen to them and understand them. Even if we find their position um, object- objectionable, even if we find their their experience alienating, even if we find them threatening, even if they represent to us things that make us incredibly uncomfortable about us. So let me catch. I want you to catch this. We're not talking about the actions. James isn't saying, go do this and don't do that. He's saying, if you engage grace, this is the effect it's going to have on your life. If you stop, stoop, and study the gospel, if you look intently at this incredible, profound message of God's love for you, and you persevere in that message to the point that you actually start to believe it, It will change you. And when it does, you're going to find yourself loving people in ways right now you don't even know how. You're going to start seeing people in ways that right now it doesn't matter how much guilt I put on you. I can't make you have a transformation. I can seek to control your behavior, but I can't transform your heart. Love does that, it will transform you. You will start to love because you are loved. It will change the way you use your tongue. It will change the way you use your finances. It will change the way you see the world. It will change the way you see yourself. It just will. That is what it means to have pure and undefiled religion before God. It's not about doing the right things. It is about being engaged and transformed in the right ways. James finishes by saying this person at the very end of verse 27, this person keeps himself unstained from the world. This person keeps himself protected from worldliness. He isn't stained by a worldly religion. He isn't stained by worldly motivations, a desire to do life apart from God, coming up with systems to try to get the blessing of God apart from humility before God. This person is unstained by worldliness. Why? Because he loves grace. He has been undone in his pride and lifted up in his shame. He, he is both humbled and drunk on God's ridiculous love. James is calling us, you guys, to fight to make it real. And we are going to have to fight to make it real we are going to have to stop and stoop and study. We are going to have to persevere next to that truth. We are going to forget how much God loves us. We are going to forget how much he he we're going to find ourselves trying to earn God's favor. We're going to find ourselves beating ourselves up when we fail thinking, "Well, God doesn't love me as much. I should have I should be here. I should have been able to account." We're going to find ourselves condemning ourselves for our failures in our parenting or in our marriage. We're going to find ourselves and the in those moments when we wake up and we realize what we're doing to ourselves, we need to once again stop and stoop and study this profound and transforming message. That God doesn't love you more when you're doing well and He doesn't love you less when you're not. It is ridiculous and it is transforming. And if you can actually start believing it, it will transform you. That's what it means to make it real. It's not about getting your act together for God. It's about getting your heart humble before God in a place where you can joyfully receive grace. Maybe we be a people who reject worthless religion and fight to make it real. Let me close with some word of prayer. We're going to share communion in a moment. Um, we'll have somebody introduce that. Let me pray for us as we move into our time of response. Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. Lord, you are a God of righteousness. You are a God of holiness. You are a God of perfection. And if that's all you were, Lord, you would be our greatest enemy in the universe because we are none of those things. Your presence would be death to us because we wouldn't be able to find life in your presence. But God, you are a God of love and you are a God of grace. And because you love us and because you are driven by by your grace toward us, you paid the price to draw us near. You absorbed our offense and took our place as our substitute. You bore the weight of our guilt. You were crushed by our shame. You died the death we deserve to die, and then rose again that we might find new life. Spirit, will you take that simple and profound message and drive it deeply into our hearts? Will you beat it into our heads? Because we forget so quickly and we stray so easily whether it's into mistrusting you and trying to find joy away from you or, or in performing for you, thinking somehow we're going to be able to earn greater favor if we can somehow put you in our debt. Lord, we confess our deep and abiding need for grace. And we thank you. Then in our need, we find our provision. In our brokenness, we meet our Savior. Spirit, we shape within us as a community. the ridiculous joy of being loved. That we might experience it ourselves and share it with others. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.